We are continuing in John chapter 10 this morning. We're going to be looking at one verse only, just verse 16. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but uh, my family enjoys reading aloud together. We spend a lot of time um, in the evenings after dinner reading books. There's several series that we've, we've read through. But one of our favorite series to read is a, is a series of books written by a guy named Ralph Moody. Uh, and Ralph Moody wrote about growing up um, in, in Colorado in the early 1900s. He was born in 1898. Um, and, and, and right now, we're, we're in the middle of, of a book called The Fields of Home. And actually, it's called The Home Ranch. Sorry, I got it wrong. It's called The Home Ranch. And in, in this book, Ralph Moody is 12 years old, and, and he gets hired um, to work as a cowboy on this ranch up in the Colorado mountains, right under P- Pikes Peak. Um, and it's, it's his first time um, working on a ranch where he's going to be herding milk cows. He'd worked before herding cattle. Um, he was actually a trick rider, so he's really, he's really adept at riding horses. But this was his very first time herding milk cows. And he said it was completely different than anything he had experienced before. I'm actually going to read to you part of the book really quickly. This is what he says. This is Ralph Moody talking about trying to herd milk cows. He says this, Steers and range cattle hold together in a herd. And each herd usually has one leader that does all the thinking. But every one of those milk cows had a mind of her own. Each one wanted to do something different. Most of them had been petted or spoiled by the people who owned them during the winter, and I began to think that maybe they'd grown to be like those people. Some were docile and some were cranky. Some were clever and some were dumb. Some were fat and lazy and others were nervous and skinny. Some bellowed as if they were angry, some lowed in a lonesome way, and just moaned as if they were sorry for themselves. He had a hard time bringing these cows home. Each one had a mind of its own. Each one would want to go off on its own. They didn't want to follow the herd. They didn't want to stay together and walk as one. One of the miraculous things about the work that Jesus does in building his church is he takes a diverse community with different desires, different likes, different preferences, and he brings them together as one. That's what we see in John 10, verse 16. But before we go there, I hope that you're not insulted that I'm comparing us all, myself included, to milk cows. Um, Because I don't know if you stop and you think about who it is that God has called when he builds his kingdom. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, says, think about your calling. So I want you to think about your calling for a second. Think about why God called you. Let me read the passage to you. Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. 
You see, when Jesus Christ is choosing the, the sheep for his flock, he's not looking at your power. He's not looking at your nobility. He's not looking at your wisdom. He's looking at your lack. That's why he called you. It was because of what you didn't have. And what he does in calling us together is he makes this beautiful, unified community. This flock of sheep who love their shepherd and will follow him as one wherever he leads them. Let's look at the text for today. John 10 verse 16. Jesus is speaking and he says this, but I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus has been talking to the Jews, and he's been talking about how he's the the good shepherd, and he calls his sheep, and they come to him. We talked about that passage two weeks ago, but I sort of glossed over this verse right here, and I want to come back, and I want to camp out on it today, and I want to focus on what is he talking about when he talks about other sheep, and what does he mean when he says he's going to make one flock from those other sheep? We're going to be trying to answer those, those two questions. And so if I was going to summarize everything I'm going to tell you today, it's simply this. It's that Jesus makes one flock from every nation. He, he, he's speaking to Jews and he wants them to understand, guys, you're not the only ones who at the end of the day are going to be in my flock. I have other sheep who aren't here, who aren't listening to me right now. I'm going to call them and they're going to come also and you're all going to be one flock. Jesus makes one flock from every nation. And as the good shepherd, there's two works that he's doing to build that flock. Two works that I see in this passage Jesus does to build the flock. Look look at the the passage and you'll see the very first thing he says he's going to do is he's going to draw his sheep. He's going to draw his sheep to himself. And I put the word all in there. Because you need to understand the reason you came to him is because he drew you. It's because he called, he gave you ears to hear, eyes to see, and you came. And we we focused on that two weeks ago. He draws all his sheep. But the question remains, who are all his sheep? Specifically, who are the other sheep that he's talking about in this passage? What does he mean when he says, I have other sheep? I think it's really clear in Matthew 28, as Jesus is giving the directions to the disciples. It's it's classically called the Great Commission. He tells them who those other sheep are. Let's look at it. Matthew 28, verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus talks about other sheep, he's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about non-Jews. Well, well, which non-Jews? Some from every nation. Well, we still need to define some terms here. What does it mean when, when Jesus says all nations? Now that question right there, there's entire books written on that question right there. What does Jesus mean when he says all nations? But what I want to show you really quickly is just a simple word study. The word for nations right here is the Greek word ethnos. 
I'll put the, the English letters here so you guys can, can see it. Ethnos. If you think about that, what word do you think we get from ethnos? Ethnic. Yeah, so we have ethnic groups. The word ethnos, I'm going to give you a simple definition for it. It's a people group sharing a common race, language, and culture. A people group sharing a common race, language, and culture that makes up a ethnic group or a people group. I've spent a lot of time um, reading books about missions. I have a passion about missions. And in 1982, they actually came up with a really tight definition for what a people group is for world missions. And, and it should make sense that we're concerned about this because we're supposed to make disciples of all nations, so we sort of need to know who all nations are. Um, so here's the, here's the definition. This is the, the San definition from 1982. And, and classically, you go, you take a class on missions. This is the definition they're going to use for all nations. It's for evangelical purposes, a people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planting movement without encountering bar barriers of understanding or acceptance. So what's, what's a barrier of understanding? A barrier of understanding wouldn't just be a language, it would also be a dialect. Uh, sometimes within a language, the dialects are so different that the people, they can't communicate the gospel to each other. So we, we have to divide it all the way down to dialect, but then also acceptance. You, you, look at, uh, you look at India, they have a caste system. And within that caste system, one caste can't communicate with another. That creates more subdivisions of our people groups there. Uh, you, you look at other areas where cultures have been separ separated by geographical barriers and they've created their own cultural identity and they don't understand each other when they try to communicate with each other, even though maybe they're communicating in the same dialect. That's, that's a barrier to acceptance. Well, because, well, that's good for you over there as an American, but for us over here, we're not Christians, we're Muslims. And so there's that barrier of acceptance, even though maybe the language is understood. So, so let, me, let me give you um, some statistics. Let me give you some statistics. Um, specifically, if, if we use this definition right here, there's a couple of different ways to divide it down. But this is the most accurate number I could find. There's about 17,446 people groups in the world. There's about 17,446. So when, you, when we look at that definition and we use that definition to define a people group, um, the, the Joshua Project, if you guys are familiar with the Joshua Project, they've defined 17,446 different people groups. Do, do you want to know how many of those are reached? Well, we'll have a graphic for you right here. Um, and you might not be able to see that. I don't know. But of that, 7,408 are unreached. 7,408 are unreached. That's about 42.5% of the people groups in the world right now are unreached. Now, what do I mean by unreached? Unreached means that less than 2% of that population is evangelical Christian. So out of the 17,000 people groups in the world, just over 7,000 of them are unreached reached. The harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. That truth continues all the way down till today. There, there are so many people in the world 
who have yet to hear the gospel. Now, one of the things that I'm passionate about is people being able to hear the gospel in their heart language, their heart language. What I mean by that is if you leave America, people speak multiple languages. Do you know that? In other countries, most people are bilingual at least, right? Most of them are, are trilingual or more, okay? And, and, but most of those people, when they learn a second or a third language and they hear the gospel in that second or third language, it doesn't resonate with them because it's not in their native tongue. It's not in their first language. We call that their heart language. And, and so, so Wycliffe gives us some statistics about Bible translation. So let me, let me give you the numbers for Bible translation because it's not quite so dire when we look at Bible translation. So 42.5% of the world is unreached. With Bible translation, it's only about one in five people who don't have a Bible. So one in five people are still waiting for a Bible in their language. That's, that's pretty good, but look, look at the numbers here. There are... Um, 1,548 languages that right now have the complete New Testament. There's 1,138 languages that have some portion of the Bible, and there's 2,617 languages that have active translation work. Well, well what does that mean? Well, there's 7,353 languages spoken in the world. Now, if you're paying attention to the numbers here. I said there's 17,000 people groups, but there's 7,000 languages. It's because within those languages, we have different cultures. We have different, um, we have different values. We have different dialects. But there's 7,000 language. So right now, there are currently 3,969 languages with no scripture. That represents 171 million people. I want you to think about that. There's 3,969 languages with no scripture. 2,115 of those languages still need translation work to begin. Some of those languages, they've started working on them. But there's 2,115 languages with no translation work. You know, one of the things that breaks my heart when I read missionary stories, I read about these guys like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. And their families and their friends said, you're wasting your talents. We need our best and our brightest getting out there and doing this. We need our sharpest minds getting, it's not easy work to be a linguist. Linguists are some of the sharpest people in our society. We need our best and brightest to get out there and translate God's word. Can you imagine the treasure in heaven you would have if you were the person who brought God's word to an unreached people group. You were the person who began the work of translating the Bible. It, it was, it, it, I was so blessed um, when, the, when the Scots shared with us that they'd completed the, the New Testament translation. We gotta be a part of that. That's such a blessing for me, growing up here and having them come back and update us on, on their translation work in Cameroon and then having them reach that point where they said, the New Testament is done. And we got to participate in that. But how much more if you could be that person who gets out there and shares that good news? Now, look at, looking at these statistics, it can seem overwhelming. It can seem daunting. But remember that we serve the Lord of the harvest. And remember, we also have the end of the story. 
We know where this is going. In Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and they've just asked him, what, what is going to happen before you come again? What's going to be the sign of your coming? And Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 14. He says, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's the same word, ethnos, right there. We're going to get there. That's what this is saying. Those 7,000 unreached people groups, we're going to get there. It's going to happen. So when you, when you join in this work, you're joining an unstoppable work. You're joining something that cannot be thwarted. Do you get that? That's amazing. Like what kind of career can you go into where it's guaranteed not to fail? Ultimately, you will have success. Now, why is it so important that this good news is proclaimed to every nation? Look at Revelation 5. Look at the end of the story. Revelation 5, 9 says this, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's really specific. And look what he says about every single people group in the world. Jesus has already purchased them by his blood. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine walking into an unreached people group and knowing there, this people group, there's already people in this people group have been purchased by Jesus' blood. I just need to go scatter seed until they're found, until they hear their shepherd's call upon their heart, until he calls them into his one flock because he's going to do that work because he's already redeemed them. You see, you're, you're not bringing somebody into the kingdom. Jesus has already redeemed that person. You're going out and you're scattering seed. And he's already cultivated. He's already created the soil that's either going to be responsive or not. But in every single people group, there are those who have been purchased by God through his blood. And, and when we proclaim his gospel to unreached people, we're proclaiming an unstoppable message. One of my um, heroes is this guy, J.O. Frazier. Maybe you guys have heard of J.O. Frazier. Um, I read a book about his, his life called Mountain Rain. And one of the amazing things about J.O. Frazier is, is he was a missionary in China to the Lisu people. And God just placed upon his heart this call to the Lisu people. He knew he was supposed to go up to this tribe in China, and he was supposed to proclaim the gospel to them. And so he bags. He left behind a, a promising career. Um, he was trained at, as an engineer. He was a concert pianist, and he was a talented linguist. And, and he went to the Lisu people. Took him a while to, to learn the language and then get up in the mountains and then learn their language. And he began to proclaim the gospel. But what would happen as, as these people would respond, there would be demonic attacks upon them. And, and they, they realized that if we go and we worship your God, we're, we're going to be attacked. Things are going to be difficult for us. And so they would refuse to come. 
And so Sunday after Sunday, he would show up at his little church and it would be empty. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine evangelizing, evangelizing? He's completely by himself. He had nobody helping him. He translated, he wrote down their alphabet. He translated scriptures into their language diligently. And every single Sunday, he'd show up and nobody was there. Finally, somebody would come and and then they would leave. And he struggled. He would go home. He he would kneel on the floor and he would pray and he would pray and he would pray. And for six years, he did this. And then thousands, thousands came to know the Lord as he diligently dedicated himself to pursuing. And here's the amazing thing is right before the revival swept through the Lisu people, a, a missions group came to him and said, hey, we have work for you with another tribe. And these people, they're receptive, they're responsive. And he struggled because for six years he'd been proclaiming the gospel and the people hadn't heard. And he decided, this is where God called me. This is where I'm going to stay, even though I haven't seen any fruit. And it was within a year that he had that breakthrough. That's why it's called mountain rain. I don't know if you've ever been in the mountains when it comes down. That's crazy. You get drenched, and that's what he experienced in those moments. Why? It's because he realized this is a people group that God has already purchased by his blood. I just need to be faithful to proclaim the gospel. You know, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives us a command. He says, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. Do you know the Great Commission didn't start in Matthew 28? You see, the the news of the Great Commission wasn't new news in the New Testament. That this wasn't new. If you, if you read the Old Testament, you'll th- see throughout the Old Testament that God has always had a heart for the nation. His goal has always been salvation in every single people group. His goal has always been for every single people group to see his glory and worship him. Let me, let me take you back. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. You remember what's happening? God is talking to Abraham, and he singles out Abraham, and he calls Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham. But listen to what he says in Genesis 12, 3. He says this, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you hear that? You know, sometimes we read the Old Testament, we think it's all about the chosen people. It's all about Israel. It's all about the Jews. But God's ultimate goal was always for all peoples. Now, now maybe you're, you think that I'm extrapolating from the text. Maybe I'm reading that into the text. Well, I have, I have some pretty good backup because Paul agrees with me. Because Paul quotes Genesis 12.3 and Galatians 3.8. He says, now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying the scripture was already proclaiming this good news all the way back in Genesis 12, 3. It was already proclaiming the nations are going to be blessed. 
God has always had a heart for all nations. Something interesting about this verse here is the word ethnos is in two places in the verse. It's in two places. Now, you probably see it at the end. It says all the nations. Do you know the other word there that's ethnos? Gentiles. Gentiles. Because it's sort of the same thing for Jews, right? There's us, and then there's everybody else. And so all the nations, who are, we're, we're all Gentiles. We're all non-Jews. God has always desired for people from every tribe and tongue and nation to see his glory and to worship him. And he didn't, this isn't just one-time deal. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Let's look at Exodus 19, verse 5. God is speaking to the children of Israel, and he says this, Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. You guys heard that verse before? God told Israel, you're going to be to me a kingdom of priests. You may think, what, does that mean they're all priests? Well, there's the Levites. The, that tribe was the, the priests within Israel. But the whole nation of Israel was meant to be a nation of priests to the world. They, they were meant to be a nation that God connected and showed his glory to the world through. Think about this. Think about when Moses prays to God for Israel. God says, I'm going to destroy Israel and I'll make a great nation out of you. Do you guys remember what Moses appealed to? He said, what will the other nations think? And why, why did Moses say that? It's because Moses got it. Because Moses understood. God has chosen Israel. God has set them apart to manifest his glory to the world. And I'm just making it up. It's in Psalm 67. Check it out. Psalm 67 verse 1 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his face shine upon us. Selah. So that your way may be known on earth your salvation among all nations. Do you see that? Why, why does God show grace? Why does he show favor? Why does he bless Israel and make his face shine upon them so that his way may be known on the earth and his salvation among all the nations? That was God's goal with Israel is to manifest his steadfast love to them. To set them apart for the entire world as an object lesson of his mercy and grace. To entrust them with his word to preserve it. To bring his Messiah through their line. He chose them and he set them apart. But he chose them and he set them apart as a nation of priests. Who would manifest his glory and his presence to the rest of the world. Isaiah 56, 7 through 8. He says this, 
I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather them, I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. Does this sound at all like what Jesus is saying in John 10, 16? He says, I have other sheep. Now, do you remember these words right here in Isaiah 56, verse 7? God is talking about his house. He says it's going to be house of prayer. But specifically, not just a house of prayer, a house of prayer for who? For who? All nations. You see it? House of prayer for all nations. Do you remember the words of Jesus when he cleansed the temple? Do you remember what Israel was failing to do when Jesus cleansed the temple? Let, let me show you in Mark eleven seventeen. He is teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but... but what was happening was they had this, this bazaar in the courts of the temple where they were selling, they were buying and selling. And that was supposed to be the court of the Gentiles. That was meant to be a part of the temple in the outer perimeter that was set aside for Gentile nations to come in and have a location where they could pray. And the Jews decided, well, that's not important to us. We'll just buy and sell here. And so here comes, the, here comes these Gentiles who want to worship the one God. And, and there's, there's sheep, there's goats, there's people, there's money changers all in their way. And Jesus, is, when he cleanses the temple, he reminds them, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've been set apart as a people for my possession, as a priesthood. You have unique responsibilities, unique gifts, unique promises, but you are meant to manifest my presence to all the nations. You're meant to reveal my glory to every people group. And they're failing. Well then, since they failed, does that mean that God cut them off? Have you read the book of Romans? Check it out. Romans 11, Paul asked that same question. And he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Do you see his response here? You might want to plug your ears. Absolutely not. That's what he says. Okay, It's sort of emphatic. Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. See, do you see what Paul's saying right here? He's saying, has God cut off the Jews? Hello? What am I? I'm a Jew. God, God always preserves a remnant. God has preserved Paul. He's preserved other ones. He has set them apart. So God has not rejected his people. Well, then he asks another question later in the passage. He says, well, have they, have they completely fallen? Look at verse 11. I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? Now, this is a really important question. Because there's a lot of people in the world who are confused about the place of Israel today. And I don't, I don't even understand what they do with Romans 11.11. 11. 
Have they, have they fallen off and now they're just replaced? The church just goes and replaces Israel? Well, here's Paul's answer to that. It's the same word. You ready? Absolutely not! That's what he says. No, they haven't fallen. They haven't been removed. They're not gone. That's not what he's saying. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. There's that word again, ethnos. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? In other words, God letting us in is all just part of his plan to bring them in. God is going to bring in the fullness of Israel. So here's what I want you to understand is when Jesus is talking about his flock, he's talking about the Jews. He's talking about his chosen people. And those people, every single promise he's made to them is going to be realized, is going to be fulfilled. Why? Because God is a God who keeps his promises. He doesn't give up on anyone. He doesn't give up on the Jews, and he also doesn't give up on any people group in the world. The Jews will receive all of their inheritance, their land promises. All of those covenants he made with them, those will be realized. But he's going to take from them and from us, and he's going to make this one beautiful flock. Look at the passage, John 10, 16. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. So first question I asked is, who are those other sheep? Here's the second question is, is how does Jesus bring them? How does Jesus bring them? Look at the passage. Look at what it says. They will listen to my voice. What is Jesus talking about? How, how do people, the world over today, listen to his voice and respond to his call? The way they listen to his voice and respond to his call today is as the gospel message goes forth and they hear that, they're hearing his voice. They're hearing his message. They're hearing the clarion call of the gospel that demands repentance, demands renewal demands presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Do you know that the gospel is powerful? That's why Paul in Romans 1, he says, I'm not worried about proclaiming the gospel. I'm not worried about what people do or what they say, what they think about that message. Why? Because the gospel is powerful. A lot of you probably memorize that Romans 1:16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Look at the answer he gives. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God to salvation. I'm sorry, for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God. When you share the gospel message, you're not just sharing news. You're not just conveying information. You're speaking a message that by its very nature is possessed with power. And, and it's so powerful that it unites both Jew and Greek to Christ. 
everyone who believes. The Jew and the Greek. And, and Paul, when he uses the word Greek here, he's using it to mean non-Jew. The Jew and the non-Jew. So if you're like, well, I'm neither one of those. Guess I'm out of luck. No, it just means the Jew and the non-Jew. That's an all-inclusive list. The gospel call goes out to everyone. How does that work? How is it that the gospel message has power? How is it that it causes, as God works in your heart, how is it that that message causes new life? Well, it's because of what God does through that message. It, it, he, says, he says this later in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. He's talking about the gospel message right there. And as that gospel message is proclaimed, what does God do? He gives faith to the hearers. He gives them faith to believe and depend on that message to save themselves. See, the only problem with responding in the gospel is we need regenerated ears and eyes and hearts. We need him to work upon us so we can respond to the clarion call of the gospel. But with that call, he gives us the faith needed to trust him. It's so important to understand the gospel message is powerful. It doesn't need to be changed to be made powerful. It, it doesn't need to be communicated in a different way. All have sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. But it's not always so easy to communicate that message to people. Some people just don't get it. And it's tempting when you come across obstacles to the gospel to try to change it to get through to them. One of, one of my other missionary heroes is a guy named Don Richardson. You guys ever heard of him? Don Richardson, he wrote a book called The Peace Child. And, and Don Richardson, he ministered to the Swahi tribe. It's a tribe, sort of a Stone Age tribe in New Guinea. In 1962, he went to this tribe, and they were a tribe of headhunters who were at war with all the other tribes. And he learns their language, he diligently learns their language, and he begins to communicate the gospel story to them. He's telling them the story of Jesus' life. And they love it. They love stories. They love him because he's, he's ministering to them and he's developed relationships with him. But he gets to Passion Week and he gets to the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. And he's blown away when the people start cheering for Judas. You see, in their culture, they had a high value for being deceptive, for being able to trick other people. And so as they hear the gospel message, they're like, Judas is the hero. Look at that. He led them along the whole time and nobody even knew it. And they're, they're just thinking, wow, Judas is amazing. And, and Don Richardson is just crestfallen. What, what do I do? How can I communicate the gospel to a people whose moral compass is like reversed? They don't even get it. They don't even understand it. But then something happened. And I actually found a video 50 years after Don Richardson went in. Him and his sons went back. And they made a video. 
And I'm going to just show you the first two minutes of this video. The video is called Never the Same. You can, you can look it up. Um, but I'm just going to show you the first two minutes because his son Steve is going to tell you what happened that changed their hearts. Just listen as I play the video. It was 50 years ago when my mother and my father began an unforgettable journey. I was just seven months old when they moved deep into the jungles of Papua. We made our home among a small tribal group known as the Sawi. My dad learned the language. My mom treated the sick, all with the purpose of telling them about Jesus. But the people did not respond. The Sawi were headhunters. They were cannibals. They lived in a constant state of war. As time passed, we began to lose hope that the gospel would take root. My parents were faced with a decision. Finally, Dad explained to the Sawi that if they kept on fighting, we could no longer stay. But the Sawi were desperate to keep us around, so they finally agreed to make peace with each other. In order for that to happen, each Sawi village gave an infant, a baby boy, to their enemies. And this child became known as the Peace Child. It was through this unexpected exchange, buried deep in their culture, that my parents were given a perfect opportunity to share the gospel with the Sawi, to explain to them that God sent his very own peace child, Jesus, to make peace with us. It's been 50 years since that day, and we're very anxious to see how the Sawi are doing. The gospel doesn't need to be changed. The gospel has power. As it goes out, it will transform people from every nation into one flock. And I told you there's two actions he does. Let me just really quickly go through this second one. Two works that Jesus does to build his flock. First, he draws all his sheep. And then secondly, he unites all his sheep. At the end of the passage there, you see that he says, I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. So he doesn't take a bunch of different people groups and then just make this mishmash. He makes one flock. Jesus creates unity with diversity. You guys ever seen a shepherd who knows what he's doing? herding sheep. It's amazing to watch how the sheep move as one. How, how they'll sort of coalesce in different parts of the herd as they move around. I've just shown you this picture right here. All of these sheep are going through that tiny little gate right there. If we had a whole bunch of humans going through a gate like that, somebody get trampled, right? But the sheep, they all go through seamlessly, flowing, right? Because they're traveling as one. How does that happen? Through the power of the gospel. Because the power of the gospel all unites us to the same person. It says this in 1 Corinthians 1.22. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
we have these two diverse groups. One of them, the gospel sounds like foolishness. The other one, it's offensive. It's offensive. And he takes both of them and he unites them. How? It's through the power of that gospel message and it's through the wisdom of God. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.14. He says, For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. You know, one of the amazing things about the way the temple was constructed it had, it had all of these coincentric compartments. Where at the center we have the Holy of Holies and the priest can only enter in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And, and then outside of that we have an area where only the priests can enter in. Outside of that you have an area where only the men can enter in. Outside of that you have an area where the men and the women can enter in. And outside of that you have an area where the Gentiles can enter in. And the reason for all of that is because all of these rules and regulations had to be kept for people to draw near to God. But what Jesus did is he tore down that dividing wall of hostility. There's literally a wall in the temple that says no Jews, no Gentiles can pass that wall. It's torn down. Now, anyone who hears the gospel call can come. Anybody can come to him. He tore down that separating wall of hostility. So these two people groups that were at odds with each other, that hated each other, now look at their Savior and they run to him. And every single one of us has access because he removed all of those regulations for drawing near. And he has made of the two one new man, resulting in what? Peace. How does that work? How do we live as one new man living at peace with each other? Let me close with this passage, Colossians 3. He says this, Colossians 3.14, Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and that the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. You see what he says? This is how we live as one man, by putting on love, by clothing ourselves. Every day we think, am I clothing myself in love? Are the actions that I'm doing communicating love to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Because that's the perfect bond of unity. That's the blood that flows from each body part to the other. It's the love that I have for you and that you have for me. It's the love that all of us who are part of this organism, the body of Christ, experience every week when we gather and we experience the body life that we are called to. And let the peace of Christ to which you are called in one body rule your hearts. There's always this temptation for anxiety in relationships. And we are the only people in the world who can have peace in every single relationship, can let peace be the rule in all of our relationships with each other. And one of the keys to that is a constant attitude and heart of thanksgiving. My question for you today is simple. It's will you unite as one with the good shepherd's flock 
today. He's calling you from wherever you are in the world. He's calling you to himself. Will you unite as one with him today? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for calling us to yourself. For calling us from every nation. Lord, I just want to pray for workers. I want to pray for harvest workers. Lord, I know the harvest is plentiful. There's so many who are ready to hear and no one to tell them. But Lord, you are, you are the Lord of the harvest. And so Lord, I ask that you would raise up workers. Lord, from this service here today, Lord, I pray that you would raise up workers. Lord, workers to walk across the street. Workers to open up their home. Workers to share the gospel in the marketplace, in their workplace. Workers to travel across this nation and across the sea. Workers to go and tell. Lord, make us that one flock that manifests your presence to the world. That they will look at us and they will see that we are a people for your possession. We are yours. One body, one community, unified in a love that is not our own. That's poured out, shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom you've given to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.